0: This BSR is from 2017, and it examines the life of Sali Mugabe, the second first lady of Zimbabwe, after Janet Banana. Big Saturday Read. Sali Mugabe, From Ghana to Zimbabwe, by Alex T. Magaisa. A Controversial Acre As you drive due West out of Harare, Zimbabwe's capital, there is a large concrete bowl to the right and a series of hills on the opposite side of the road. The Concrete Bowl is the National Sports Stadium, Zimbabwe's premier sports arena, built by the Chinese in the mid-1980s. One of the yields is the final accommodation for men and women who upon death are declared heroes of the nation by the ZANU-PF establishment. It is known as the National Heroes Acre. It was built by the North Koreans, an uncanny coincidence which replicates the geographical positioning of the two East Asian countries initially held as a national institution at which revered heroes of the national liberation struggle who never made it to a free Zimbabwe were buried. The Heroes' echo has become a feature of ridicule in some quarters. This is partly because Zanu-PF Zanupia for so long privatized and monopolized the institution, cheapening its status and alienating it from a large proportion of the population. But there are few who still attract national acclaim the likes of Joshua Ngomo, Hebe Chitepo, Josiah Tongokara, and Jason Ziapapamoyo. Among these more admired residents of the National Shrine is Sarah Mugabe, the original wife of Zimbabwe's long-serving leader, President Robert Mugabe. Born Sally Sarah Francesca Heffron, she was known throughout most of her adult life as Sally Mugabe. Yesterday, 27 January, was the 25th anniversary of her death. This article is dedicated to her memory, not only because history matters, but because the younger generation in Zimbabwe and across Africa who know little about her remarkable career might gain some insight and perhaps some inspiration from her story. Her story is, of course, a complex affair about which an essay of 7,000 words can hardly be regarded as adequate, which commands, therefore, that it be read as a starter rather than the full meal the story begins in ghana the story begins in 1957 shortly after ghana's historic independence under the leadership of mkwame Nkrumah, when a young bachelor from rhodesia robert gabriel Mugabe, left his homeland seeking fresh pastures in the west african country a teacher by profession he found work at a saint mary's college a teacher's training college in sekondi takorandi a port city on the Atlantic coastline. It was there that the young Robert met Sally Hayfron. Enchanted by her obvious beauty, intelligence, and vivacious nature, young Robert sought courtship and eventually the two found love. Speaking at a business forum in 2014, Mugabe shared a glimpse of his courting strategies. Open quote, I remember when I was still a bachelor staying in Ghana, I drove a German maid to Doka, and this color was as blue as the sky, but thinking of the color now, it is quite repulsive and not grounded. Looking back at the time, the color was a means and a mechanism by a bachelor to attract women. And let me say at the end of my adventure, I found myself a wife and brought her back to Zimbabwe with me. Close quote. He said, reminiscing about his days as an adventurous bachelor when mugabe returned to zimbabwe on vacation in nineteen sixty he found that the political temperatures had risen quite significantly he took his opportunity when he was invited to speak at one of the public gatherings in salisbury there the eloquent teacher showcased his public speaking prowess and enthralled audiences with tales of how his adopted home the newly independent Ghana of the legendary Kwame Nkrumah was establishing a new and better society free of colonial overloads and racial discrimination. He made them see what was possible, that indeed liberation could become a reality in Rhodesia. After this, by various accounts, not least Sifa Simsipa in his autobiography, the highly articulate and charismatic Mugabe was persuaded by fellow nationalists to stay in Rhodesia rather than return to Ghana. His bachelorhood, however, stood in his way of assuming leadership. It seemed to be the view that holy matrimony gave a man weight in status and a measure of respectability, which were necessary for leadership. Robert Mgabe was an intelligent and articulate young man, but his bachelorhood did not sufficiently qualify him for leadership. They took a dim view of this and sought to rectify it. Apparently, some fellow nationalists conspired to find him a local wife. Edgar Tekere, one of Mugabe's oldest comrades from those days, revealed in his autobiography that Mugabe got into a relationship with a local woman. Her name was Abigail Kurangwa. But Mugabe knew he had also left Sally in Ghana. Tekere wrote that when news got to Sally that plans were afoot to get her men. A wife in Rhodesia, she quickly made arrangements to come down to Rhodesia. Soon thereafter, Robert and Sally got married in April 1961 at St. Mary's Catholic Church, and so began a marriage that was intimately tied to the politics of the nationalist struggle. With the young man from Southern Africa and the young woman from West Africa, theirs was an African Union even before African countries gathered to form the precursor to the African Union. Sally must have known from the beginning that she had married into politics and would have to carry the burden of both the man and his politics. Far from it being a disincentive, it is a package that she probably found attractive. Patricia Begele, her niece who was very close to her, told Heidi Holland in a book, Dinner with Mgabe, that Sally used to tell her to keep the letters that she was receiving from Mgabe when she wrote to him while he was in jail because one day he will be an important man. Sally seemed to have foreseen that the star would shine very brightly for her men. But she herself was no political novice. She had come from a politically conscious family. She had been an activist during the Nkrumah led fight for Ghanaian independence. Even as they quoted in Ghana, politics was at the center of their lives, with Ngabe esp- expressing angst at the condition of these people back in Rhodesia, where there was racial domination and discrimination as the quintessential political wife sally was to become the rock upon which Mgabe's career was anchored both before and after independence as a duck who find comfort in water sally dived into the murky waters of rhodesian politics and soon made a mark born and bred in west africa she was a rhodesian now Having arrived in Rome, she quickly adapted to the ways of the Romans. Sally, the political activist. Sally was among the leaders of the famous women's demonstration in 1961, a protest organized against the proposed 1961 constitution. The National Democratic Party, NDP, in which Robert had been inducted as the publicity secretary, had rejected the proposed constitution which they believed was designed to hoodwink the black Africans and would delay independence by many years. The women's protest was held at the offices of the then Prime Minister Edgar Whitehead's offices. When the women refused to leave, police used force and set dogs upon them. Some were injured and many were arrested and detained. The magistrate pronounced that they were guilty of obstruction and they were sentenced to pay a fine of six pounds or to serve six weeks in prison. The women were defiant, refusing to pay the fines, and therefore electing to go to prison. Sali Mugabe is quoted in Tanya Lyons' book, Guns and Guerrilla Girls, Women in the Zimbabwean Liberation Struggle, as saying, open quote, we refused to pay the fine and went to prison, close quote. However, ironically, the stance taken by the women did not go down well with their husbands, some of whom came to prison and threatened to divorce their wives unless they agreed to pay the fines. The men threatened to get new wives in their absence if the women chose to remain in jail. In a stinging rebuke of them, Robert is quoted in the same book as saying, open quote, women have shown greater courage and resolve, indeed far greater than the cowardly men, close quote. According to Sally. The women wanted to pursue a strategy of civil disobedience, open quote. Our plan of action while in jail was to refuse without exception to cooperate with the authorities. And finally, we were charged and brought before the court. We went on a hunger strike and refused to eat the horrible food we were given. The concept was total disobedience, close quote. She quoted a saying in Tanya Lyon's book which refers to Sarah Kachingwe and others' biography of Sally Mugabe. However, threatened with divorce, most women succumbed and were released after they were bailed out by their husbands. Sally and a few others whose husbands were more supportive of the cause remained resolute and stayed until they were later released under a general release program. Evidently, even in those early days just months after a glorious wedding, Sally had already taken leadership and was proving a credentials as a pillar for her husband and his political career. Behind every successful man. To say behind every successful man there stands a woman is probably an overused cliché. But there's none more suitable to describe the relationship between Robert and Sally. She was there when he entered the fray. She was there too when he languished in Smith's jails and she was right beside him when he ascended to the throne as the first prime minister of the newly independent Zimbabwe in 1980. The romance that had begun under the searing temperatures of Sekondi Takorandi bloomed as Robert and Sally became the power couple of the newly independent Zimbabwe. Sally took on an active and visible role during the liberation war in the nineteen seventies, supporting a husband who by now was the ZANU leader. There is a wartime video in which Mgabe and Sally are sitting together being interviewed by a Western journalist. When the journalist asks her what she thinks of white Rhodesians who regard a husband as a open court thoroughly evil man, close quote. Sally makes claim pitch for a husband. Open quote. I think it hurts to some extent, close quote, she says. Open quote It hurts because these people who talk like that have not taken the trouble to get to know the man and they just speak from what they hear from others. They read from other newspapers what is propaganda against him and they take it in like that. This is what hurts, close quote. It was one example of the defensive role she played in support of her husband during those difficult years. One of her contemporaries and fellow revolutionary, Feng Chang, Devotes quite a few pages to a memory of Sally in a autobiography, reliving the second Chimurenga. Open quote. It was during this period that Sally Mugabe, Mugabe's wife, made an indelible mark on the revolution in support of her husband's claim to leadership. Sally Mugabe was a single-minded woman. She was characterized by her absolute dedication to the liberation of Zimbabwe. Close quote. Writes Chang, herself an important participant in the liberation struggle and first-hand witness of Sally's efforts. Chang installs the virtues of Sally, saying she was a hard-working woman who used her role to mobilize support for freedom fighters and refugees in the refugee camps in Mozambique, Tanzania, and Zambia. She writes, open quote, a very practical person. Sally supported the, the liberation struggle in simple and practical ways. She collected clothes and sewing machines from donors. These were distributed to every refugee camp for Zimbabweans. She provided clothes to enable tailoring workshops to be established in every camp. She herself sewed shirts, skirts, and trousers and dis- distributed them in military and refugee camps. I myself received a skirt from her. These clothes were much appreciated in the camps. Young recruits in threadbare clothes, often exposing their backs and buttocks appreciated the clothes she sent, close quote. In his book, Sweden and National Liberation in Southern Africa, Te Sostrom also points out that Sally Mugabe played a key role mobilizing Swedish solidarity and support for the national liberation struggle. Solstrom quotes Helen Kruz, who was a board member of SIDA, commented that, open quote, one person more than anybody else who managed to carry home the cause of ZANU and Zimbabwe to the Swedish public was the late Mrs. Salim Gabe. close quote. Naturally, the work that Sally did gave way to Mugabe's leadership role within ZANU, especially at a time when there were serious leadership disputes. There was a strong symbolic significance to the support that she was giving to freedom fighters and refugees. She was seen as a concerned and compassionate mother of the revolution, an image that continued to hold significance after independence, which entered the title as the original Amai Mugabe. In Chang's words, open quote, she was seen as a caring and concerned person who was doing her best to alleviate the suffering of the freedom fighters and refugees. This was an important contribution to her husband's political popularity. Through her tireless work, she created the political image of a caring and dedicated leadership. Close quote. When Mugabe was in jail, Sally played an important role, assisting him with books and materials as he studied for his numerous degrees. In her book, Dinner with Mugabe, Heidi Holland quotes an extensive interview with Sally's niece, Patricia Bekele, who explains how Sally would gather and send books and materials for his studies. Mugabe spent his years in jail studying for his degrees and teaching fellow inmates. His current deputy, Emerson Nangagwa, was one of his students. Sally spent hours in London libraries collecting books and sending copies to Mugabe. However, according to Bekele, since some books were banned in Zimbabwe, Sally would meticulously and painstakingly copy sections from the band copies by hand and send them to her husband in jail by surreptitious means. Open quote, she will paste copies into a toothpaste box in the hope that the warders will not spot it. The time she spent copying these notes to him, the library was incredible. It was clearly for love, sheer love, close quote, says Bekele. Losing Namo It is a truism that no parent should ever have to bury their child. It is even worse to have to do it alone, to carry the burden of mourning without the other parent. This is the unkind set of circumstances that befell Sally in 1966 when their young child died. Robert was in jail back in Rhodesia when this happened. Robert and Sally had been blessed with the baby son in 1963. They called him Namo Tsenyika, the nation's troubles in reference to the troubles that their country was going through and the challenges the boy's parents had to carry. According to Patricia Bekele, when Sally's mother asked why they'd given him that name, Robert explained that his parents had to live separate lives on account of the country's troubles. A nation they were fighting to liberate, and therefore it was befitting. When Mugabe and other nationalists returned to Rhodesia from Tanzania, where they had sought sanctuary, Robert and Sally agreed that she would take their son to Ghana. Sally could not return to Rhodesia because she would have been arrested, leading to separation from her young baby. When they left Rhodesia, Sally escaped bail and there was a warrant for her arrest. Going to Ghana for a while to stay with their parents was a suitable option which they agreed to take. Sadly, young Namo's candle did not burn for long before it was quickly and cruelly smothered. The boy did not live long. He contracted cerebral malaria and died in December 1966. He was only three. It was a terrible tragedy for the young couple, Robert and Sally. What was already an unbearable tragedy was made worse by the refusal of the Smith regime to grant Mugabe permission to go and join his wife to bury their son. This blow was more brutal than the hand of death itself. It left Sally, the young mother, to carry the burden alone. Robert's brother Donato made the long trip to Ghana to comfort his sister-in-law. Donato became Mugabe's representative in the darkest moments of his family life, for when Sally died in 1992, it fell upon his shoulders once again to fly to Ghana to be the messenger of the sad news to her family. Patricia Beckkellet describes Sally's situation at the difficult time when their son died. She's quoted in Heidi book, open court. When Mammy got the news that Namo had gone, she just screamed and screamed. Then she was sad for a long time, so sad. She was also very sad that Uncle Bob had not been able to see more of Namo. I remember how much she cried again when she heard that they wouldn't release him from prison for the funeral. She became quite bitter against the white regime after that close quote. It obviously hurt Mgabe too, and although he appeared to be more forgiving towards the white regime in the early years of independence, his actions later suggest it's a bitterness that never left his heart. This account of this terrible time is corroborated by Malcolm Fraser, former Prime Minister of Australia, writing in the Australian newspaper on 17 April 2008 explaining why he had begged Mugabe in the early years. He cited the magnanimity that Mugabe had shown to his former jailers. He wrote that when Mugabe's child was seriously ill in 1966, an English bishop had offered to open quote, play hostage for Mugabe in jail, close quote, if Smith permitted. open quote, Mugabe to visit Sally and give support to her because of the severity of the child's illness. Smith's answer was a blunt no, it was a communist trick, he would have none of it, close quote. The English bishop made the same offer when the child died, offering to play hostage for Mugabe in jail if Smith allowed Mugabe to be with his wife at their child's funeral. According to Fraser, open quote, Smith's response was as blunt as before. He had already said that it was a communist trick. The fact the child was dead did not alter that, close quote. Sir Walter Prendergast, former British High Commissioner to Zimbabwe between 1989 and 1992, also echoed the same sentiments in a 2012 interview at Cambridge University. He explained how Mgabe had gone through open court the very distressing experience of having his only child die of malaria in Ghana and not being allowed to go to see him. He was incarcerated at the time without trial under detention. He said to the regime that he wanted to go to his son's funeral in Ghana, and he promised that if they let him out, he would come back and go back to detention. And I'm sure he meant to, but they wouldn't let him go. And so there was a certain bitterness, close quote. The sadness of loss was compounded when it became clear that Sally would never have children again because of a medical condition which eventually took her to the grave. She had high blood pressure and kidney complications. In any event, she had to spend her prime years separated from her husband, who was detained by the Smith regime for 10 years. Since Ngadu was in jail for 10 years, they had only spent 3 years together in the first 13 years of their life. Her condition was unfortunate and not of her making, yet she seemed to have been condemned to take more punishment as if it were a fault. That she could not have children apparently became the justification peddled to explain Robert's taking of her second wife during the painful twilight period of her life. Without children of her own, Sally doted on young children, particularly orphans, for whom she established a charity. One of her marquee projects after independence was the Child Survival and Development Foundation, established to look after the welfare of children. Her love for children was legendary, cementing a title as Amai Mugabe. Sadly, after her death, her projects, including the Child Survival Foundation, have either struggled or gone into oblivion. As you drive on the Domboshawa road from Harare, one can see dilapidated structures bearing her name, symbolic of the utter neglect of a legacy after her departure. Betrayal the loss of her son, the forced separation from her husband for colonial authorities, immigration troubles in Britain, and a subsequent illness may have hurt her a great deal. But it is arguably the betrayal by her husband at a time when she was frail, in pain and terminally ill that, her, that must have killed her spirit long before she drew her last breath. In the late 1980s, her husband to whom she had been so devoted and loyal for so many years, began an affair with the young secretary who was in his office. The secretary was a beautiful mother of one called Grace Marufu, then married to a military officer, Stanley Goreraza. By various accounts, Sally had long become aware of her husband's extramarital affair, and it hurt her badly. Robert and Grace affair had already produced an illegitimate, Illegitimate child, Bona, who was born in 1990, two years before Sally's death. The young girl was named after Mugabe's mother, the family matriarch. According to Fei Chang, Sally was not popular among the close tribal circle that surrounded Mugabe. They perceived her as a stumbling block to their ambitions of hegemony and favors, which they believed were due to them by association with the most powerful man in the land. Sally was a more open character whose Ghanaian roots meant she was not susceptible to tribal allegiances or biases within Zimbabwe. Chang writes that Sally believed that these tribal conspirators were determined to replace her with a local wife. Chang also reveals that it was so bad that in her final year's Feeling isolated, ostracized, betrayed, and seeing the machinations against the Ismgabe took on a new wife, Sally was considering returning to Ghana, her home country. Chang explains, open quote, Sally, a very sensitive and intelligent woman, was well aware of these machinations. She interpreted them as reflecting an inability of Zimbabweans to accept her wholeheartedly because she was a Ghanaian. In her last year, she was even contemplating returning to her home country. She remained only out of loyalty to her husband, despite the painful situation she found herself in of being replaced by a younger, more beautiful, and more fecund second wife who had already produced a child for Mugabe some years before Sally's death. Close quote. That she was aware of Grace's arrival before her death is corroborated by her niece Patricia Vekele who refers to Grace rather dismissively as that open quote that you that young woman who arrived before Mammy died, close quote. says Sally, open quote, did didn't like it, the arrival of Grace, but being old school, her motto was to carry on in gracious style. Close quote. Mugabe himself has recently spoken about this situation. In an interview with Dalitambo Tambo for a TV show in 2018, Mukabe recounted how he had confessed his affair to Sally as she lay dying. After Sally was gone, it was necessary for me to look for someone, and even as Sally was still going through her last few days, although it might have appeared to some as cruel, I said to myself, well, it's not just myself needing children. My mother is all the time saved. Ah, am I going to die without seeing grandchildren? So I decided to make love to her, Grace. She happened to be one of the nearest and she was a devotee herself, and so it was. We got our first child when my mother was still alive. He did not mention that the child arrived while Sally was still alive and long before he confessed to her in those final days. Implicit in this statement is that he realized it was cruel on Sally. But he put his interest and his mother's interest first. It is, it is also ironic that for Mugabe, at this time, Grace was no more than a baby-making machine for him, a factory for the transmission of his genes. When asked by Tambo if he had told Sally about the illicit affair with Grace, Mugabe said, open court. I did tell her, and she just kept quiet and said, it's fine. But she did ask, do you still love me? I said, yes. And she said, Oh, fine. Close quote. He spoke softly and casually, but it must have been very sad and painful for Sally when he made the confession. That the confession came towards the end of her life, long after the illicit liaison with Grace had produced the child, suggested it was more for his benefit than for Sally. As a Catholic, for whom the ritual co- The ritual of confession is central to the faith. He probably believed a confession before Sally's death would make his indiscretions lighter and thaw personal guilt. He didn't realize that the words were probably like a dagger to a betrayed heart. By then, she was already helpless and vulnerable. What could she do? She had stood by him all these years, patiently waited for him during his time in Smith's jail, and here she was, lying in bed, waiting for the final day, and her husband rewarded her with the confession of his illicit affair, which had been kept secret all along, but of which she was already aware. The justification of, for the illicit affair which Mgabe gives is rather feeble and selfish. He says he did it for his mother, who wanted grandchildren. Put differently, it was Sally's fault because she could not give his mother grandchildren. That she was terminally ill, which should have been known to both sins, according to Chang. She had been on dialysis for nearly two decades and she was going on dialysis twice a week, it did not deter him. It is said to imagine that after all those years and struggles, Sally may have regretted a decision to marry in 1961. Chang recounts how Sally had told her that the white magistrate who registered the marriage when she first came to Rhodesia had warned her that polygamy was commonly practiced among the Africans and that she should give it serious thought. In consideration before committing herself to marriage with the Rhodesian, open quote, sadly, for her, close quote, Rice Chang, open quote, this white magistrate's warning came back to haunt her in the last years of her life when her husband decided to take a second wife, close quote. Sally may never have gotten the chance to hit back at the young woman who took her husband. But her family has never forgiven Grace. An opportunity was availed to them in 2007 when Mugabe and Grace attended Ghana's 50th anniversary of its independence. While there, Mugabe took that opportunity to visit his in laws, Sally's family in Sekondi Takorandi. He rather unwisely took Grace along with him. The Zimbabwe Independent newspaper of 9 March 2007 reported that Grace suffered a huge embarrassment when she was barred by Sally's family from entering their home. The newspaper reported that George Charamba, the presidential spokesman, had confirmed the incident. Open quote. There was a small misunderstanding between the presidential delegation and some some of the family members of the, the late First Lady. You must understand that the president is a married man, and what happened is a fairly normal tension in an African marriage. Close quote. He is quoted by the paper as having said, when asked about the incident, "Apparently, Chris had to wait in the vehicle." One government is in laws.